0: Hello, and welcome back to episode
1: 17 of The Acts in Politics. This is season two, and we have a great interview for you all. Coming up later, Kayla was actually at the Women's March in Washington, D.C. She did some field reporting, talked to some of the participants, asked them some questions. But before that, we'll give you a little rundown of what's happened in the last week. So I'm Lucas. I'm Maddie. And I'm Ben. Maddie's new. She's joining us this quarter. She's a freshman. Maddie.
0: <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, great. Um, So let's just get started here. So as most of you guys probably know, uh, Donald Trump in his first week of the presidency has really, really come out with a slew of executive actions, orders, memos, what have you on some relatively big policy issues. We can just run down the line here. Maddie. you want to? talk about some of them
0: for sure so uh, one of the most recent ones it was an executive order that allowed the companies who are planning the Keystone and Dakota pipelines to resubmit an application for those that happened on January 24th Um, so that was two days ago
1: yeah others you know we officially backed out the TPP that one was not as surprising that was something Trump pretty handily campaigned on and that's something you can do pretty easily with executive actions He's imposing a 20% tax on all Mexican imports. Similarly, he's directed the Secretary of Homeland Security to begin reallocating federal funds to the construction of a wall. What this means is that sort of within the existing appropriation for the Department of Homeland Security, Trump has asked the Secretary to find out where we can get some more funds as sort of like a down payment on the wall. To actually build the wall, he would need much more funds, which would come from a separate appropriations bill in May that would have to go through Congress. Trump has reinstated the global gag rule. This has to do with women's reproductive rights. Essentially, what it does is he pulls funding for NGOs, for foreign NGOs that talk about abortion as an option for women's reproductive rights. So, for example, there's already legislation that says that federal taxpayer dollars cannot support abortions of any kind anywhere. This goes a little bit further, and it says if you're a nonprofit that counsels women on family planning, what have you, and you even suggest abortion as an option, or you even talk about it in any way, shape, or form, then you lose your funding from the uh, United States government. Um, Which is pretty prototypical of Republican administrations. This is something that the Reagan administration started, that was removed by the Clinton administration, put in place again by the George W. Bush administration, removed by the Obama administration. Now we have the Trump administration doing it again.
0: Yeah, and there was a study done that um, actually proves a reverse effect. Global um, abortions actually increase with the um, gag rule in place.
1: Yeah, so to be clear, abortions in those countries that are affected by the NGOs that have this sort of money, what it does is that the NGOs lose their money from the American government, so they they can't provide as much contraceptive devices to women, so that obviously leads to more unplanned pregnancies, which in turn leads to more abortions, which is, again, an interesting reverse effect. There's a federal hiring freeze on non-military workers, so the federal government can't really hire anyone right now. There's a slew of executive orders having to to deal with immigration. He's going to... Supposedly, he hasn't actually come out with this publicly yet, but Vox News got their hands on a draft of the order, which they felt comfortable enough publishing, saying that countries on sort of the State Department's list of terrorism-sponsoring countries, that's Iran, Sudan, Syria, and those countries designated by the Department of Homeland Security as countries of concern, that's Libya, Somalia, Yemen. Those six countries we are going to sort of heavily vet or ban immigrants from coming from those countries to the United States. And then Iraq is also included in the list, sort of for separate reasons. And those are all Muslim-majority countries, so a lot of people view this as him sort of staying true to that Muslim ban, but sort of creating some more legal ground for it. Yeah, it it was a lot. It was a lot of policies, and I think, sort of without getting into the nitty-gritty of the policy, I think there's a lot to be said on political strategy and what the Trump- camp is trying to do by sort of doing all this really, really quickly, and how the Democrats resist.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is what we were talking about uh, before we got started. Uh, We talked on the last episode about the potential for the first hundred days uh, and whether the Democrats could successfully derail Trump in the first hundred days. He's definitely coming out very strong. I mean, this is is what one would expect. Uh, We're going to be hearing a lot more about this. Another thing that wasn't on this list because it's still in the works was the Supreme Court nominee. And that's really interesting with regard to its connection to the strategy here. There have been rumors that Trump is down to three nominees. He could announce very soon. There was also a rumor, it may have been confirmed, I don't recall, uh, that he'd be meeting with senators uh, to talk about a Supreme Court nominee. If he announces now, he runs the risk, of course, of distracting from other policy goals. But if if he announces later he runs the risk of not having enough political capital when he arrives at that point. Something that we were talking about in this room was the potential for him to send some kind of olive branch. Uh, Senator Schumer, for example, announced a plan for a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending, trying to take very literally what Trump was guaranteeing and what even Bernie was talking about during the campaign. Should he reach out and negotiate with the Dems on a deal along those lines, which I think is entirely possible, he could, I think, get the political chips to maybe push through a nominee, especially if it's not a more extreme nominee. I mean, of course, he'll have, at the very least, a very conservative person um, as his nominee. But should it be someone within the realm of reason, if he extends enough of an olive branch, I wonder whether that could leave the nominee's potential...
0: In other recent news, the entire senior State Department staff decided to resign today and for the first time ever, there's going to be an office for victims of crimes committed by removable aliens, which has people up in arms about the idea of people being called removable aliens, Um, and that office will be creating a report every day that goes to Donald Trump's desk with a list of crimes committed across America by illegal immigrants.
1: Yeah, I think going back to what sort of what Ben's talking about here with this political strategy, right? This is that sort of bargaining with a nominee and the infrastructure. That's sort of what you expect to see from, you know, a Republican president and a Democratic and a Democratic minority leader in the Senate. And that's right. That's the normal ebb and flow of politics. What we have with some of these policies, especially in regards to the Muslim immigration, maybe the wall too. This is sort of outside the normal ebb and flow of politics. And what's really good for the Trump campaign is that these symbolically are very significant. He's coming out right after his inauguration, quote-unquote, delivering on some very key campaign promises, his big issues, right away. So it's right, direct appeal to the base, right? But substantively, some of these policies are a little hazy, right? The, for the, For example, the executive order on the wall, right? Reallocating federal funds to the wall. This in no way enables him to just start building a wall a week from now, right? He still needs these funds from Congress later on, but that doesn't get reported as much. That's not that aspect of this executive order is not really communicated, especially to Trump's base. So to his base, it seems like he's right away delivering on the promise of the wall when we have no guarantee of a wall yet. And so, politically, from a communication standpoint, this is a great strategy for the Trump camp. For the Trump camp, right? They. They've got their base fired up, and the base isn't really paying attention to the actual policy. That's sort of what, something we talked about later. So for the Democrats, you know, we can do this infrastructure plan, That'll be, that would they would notch a pretty, pretty big win there, um, and then sort of negotiate with the Supreme Court nominee, but they've got to start coming out and communicating sort of direct appeals to the Trump's base saying, from a matter-of-fact standpoint, this is exactly what these executive orders do, yes, it's a step in the right direction if you favor those kind of policies, but do not start thinking that this will mean that the policies have actually realized themselves.
2: Yeah, and I mean, a point on that, with regard to whether the Democrats would work with him on those policies, of course, not the more absurd policies, the wall of what have you, Uh, but on infrastructure spending specifically, and we keep returning to that, I guess, just because it's such a good example. There is definitely an inclination in the Democratic base to not work with Trump on anything, including infrastructure spending, just by virtue of his name being on it, in the same way that Republicans did with Obama. And I wonder how the Dems will swing in 2016. I wonder how the Dem leadership will swing in 2016 or 2017. God. I wonder whether there's a way that the Dems can sell this as a victory for them. I wonder if, if they were to negotiate on infrastructure infrastructure spending if they would try to swing it as that they kind of duped President Trump into a very liberal bill, the parallel messaging will be super interesting if that happens. But then also, it plays into the hands, or rather, an even better point is what will happen to the Bernie-type people, those who demand more ideological purity on the left, but who then also are in favor of things like infrastructure spending. It could then be the institutional Dems who point to them and say that they have given up their um, ideological purity and their commitment to the cause in sacrificing, perhaps, causes of social justice to give up, put those aside in working with
1: Trump to deliver an infrastructure bill. For the Democrats, I think you said something very interesting, which is they face one of two decisions, right? Do you oppose everything that Trump does the way the Republicans opposed Obama outright, and you sacrifice institutional integrity in the Senate, mostly... institutional integrity in the Congress, which, again, will further magnify the distrust that already exists in American politics, the cynicism for our American political system, which I think will send our politics down a very dark road that I don't personally want to see us go down. But then again, if you start negotiating with Trump, you will face attacks from certain individuals, supposedly on your side, that don't want anything to do with the man, right? And it's a tough decision for sure. Um, but I'm thinking we translate a little bit over to some Stanford news now. Big news coming out of the band. Maddie, do you wanna talk about that? For sure,
0: yeah. So the band was suspended through spring quarter of 2016 and today that was rolled back into a provisional status that is through, still through the end of spring quarter. But um, they will remain as a recognized student organization and will uh, start to again rehearse, hold membership meetings, proceed with dolly and tree selection continue their search for a musical director, and proceed with other related activities.
1: Yeah, and this was sort of born out of Echamendi's view that the band appealed their suspension and sort of came up with this plan that sort of says, okay, here's concrete steps that we will take to address some of your concerns. And Echamendi looked at the plan and he said, yeah, this is great. Um, you guys put a lot of effort into this. We see that you genuinely have recognized the problems that." we recognize in your organization and you're making efforts to fix them. And so the uh, provisional status is assuming the band does go through with these changes um, and does them the way they describe they're going to do them, then come the next school year we'll have the Stanford band, which is yeah.
2: great. Uh, of course, as I always do, to talk about the narrative surrounding it a narrative I've seen already on Facebook is kids talking about uh, the school wanting to have the band back in time for Admit Weekend and seeing it as a selling point. Of course, I mean, it, there's a funny continuum where people will be activists, right? They will advocate for the band to return, and then when the band does return or when the, the university does respond, they'll say something along the lines of, oh, well, they just wanted to save face after our complaining. But isn't that just how activism is supposed to work? On The, the, the school side is to say that the band was very compliant, that the band showed leadership, um, and addressed the fears that the the university articulated, which, I mean, knowing people in band, I think they really did give a valiant effort, and really, especially in light of people being very mad about band being banned. The band itself really tried to keep a level head and to try to, uh, stop a lot of the rabble-rousing, and I'm going to mention the FOHO by name, because I'm 100% sure they're going to send out an email later today, if not tomorrow, about how they're pretty absurd FERPA email request thing, which the band specifically told them not to advocate for, was really what got the band back. Audience who may not know, FOHO is a publication on campus. Um, they told students that they should fill out FERPA requests, which are uh, Federal, Federal Education Rights and Privacy Act. I may be making that up. uh request that the university has to look at the band then said, "Please don't do that. You're sending messages to the wrong administrators. You are literally causing people to have to stay in on weekends who have nothing to do with band's investigation." To which FoHo then sent a later email saying, "Look at how many emails we're sending. We're doing such a great job, and I'm sure they're going to now claim victory." I have a long-standing thing against FoHo, so. Yeah,
0: congrats. but one has to um, question the timing of the decision provost echemendy steps down on monday um and his legacy is in question seeing as though the end of last quarter was incredibly um unpopular for the administration and one has to question whether this decision was made at a time when when he can look back and say like oh i did this one last popular thing
1: yeah and just further elaborating on the policy there is going to be an oversight committee that again monitors the band's progress in implementing those reforms that we spoke about earlier. And sort of the band will be able to, p- to perform in public spaces and athletic events and such as approved by this oversight committee. So we could see band performances as early as the end of this quarter, um, if not spring quarter. And again, that, that'll point maybe organizations like the Fountain Hopper to claim victory in the battle and it's also interesting what Ben was saying about this activism double-edged sword, where it's like, oh, they we complain and they listen to us, but sort of saying that in a negative tone when that's sort of what activism is. But yeah, I think that's just about. That was the biggest news out of campus this week.
0: In other um, interesting uh, Stanford campus news, um, we've noticed that the Stanford News website has started posting interviews with Stanford professors about certain Trump policies that are coming out, which is an interesting step for a university to be both plugging the amazing talent that they have on their campus, but also potentially um, getting into the political sphere.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, um, had Mitt Romney won in 2012, that the school would make such an emphatic, uh, uh, take such an emphatic stance uh, to elevate voices against him. Yeah, I mean, the school institutionally is is very willing, at least in this case, to stand up for something. I'll point out also that uh, when Black Lives Matter first became a, a hashtag, uh, an item in our kind of discourse, right, they put out this letter, I think it was signed by Elam and a number of other people saying, your lives matter to us, by the way. So that's interesting, right, thinking about the the kind of areas where the school will and won't take a stance, and they're taking a stance on Trump especially in light of demands that they make people comfortable on campus, and I know that there are Trump people on campus in fact, we talked to one last week which, you know, coming out of a, a class that I recently took justice with Rob she he talks about the extent to which we will bend over backwards to try to accommodate people and make people comfortable in classes, which I think is a great thing, uh, but that we're very selective with it, right? We would, I don't think go to any amount of a length to accommodate a conservative student. Of course, this gets at the very obvious uh, question of whether the school should be taking political stances, but hey, I'm not mad yeah. about it in this case, so...
1: Yeah, and, you know, one even questions is if this is taking a political stance. They've done this sort of nifty thing, right? So the Stanford News site, you can just Google Stanford News, you'll be taken to the site. It's where this, the, the university, you know, puts out their official press releases, so... Whenever they have to respond to an issue surrounding the university, they'll put stuff on this website.
0: They put out um, announcements if professors or students win major awards.
1: Yeah, and then they they sort of commend great studies that the university has done. Um, So looking at some headlines here, artificial intelligence used to identify skin cancer. That's something that some researchers here at Stanford did. Stanford feels, you know, they should be commended for that publicly, so they do that. But then also on this website, as we were describing, they have... Article titles like "Stanford Law Professor Discusses Revival of Keystone and Dakota Pipelines," "Stanford Expert Addresses International Trade and the TPP," and so this isn't the university flat out taking a stance matter of factly, because again, they're they're sort of outsourcing that to an individual professor. So if a taxer made saying you took a stance, they could say actually this is the professor's stance. We just gave them a voice to express that. Then again, in and of choosing which professors to interview. Which issues to cover, um, you know who to give a voice to on this, who to magnify, and who to give the voice to on this larger stage. It does sound like they're leaning one way, so something to keep your mind on. But I think about that just about wraps it up. Um, you know, like we said, there, there's going to be an interview just now from Kay- like Kayla did at the Women's March in D.C. Particularly relevant to the Stanford community, given there was huge numbers of undergraduates and graduates alike attending marches in San Francisco, Sacramento. Uh, Oakland, San San Jose. Kayla went out with the Stanford contingent out to the D.C. march, so uh, stay tuned to hear from her.
3: On January 20th, 2017, I flew across the country to attend the Women's March on Washington in Washington, D.C. My flight was filled with pink hats, rolled up banners stowed in the overhead, and T-shirts stamped with the logo of the march. It was encouraging for a solo traveler like me, who had not been expecting to see any march-goers until the next day. Then, on January 21st, I was immersed in a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people listening to speeches, chanting catchy slogans, and finally marching through the streets of D.C. During the day, I caught up with a few Stanford students and a few strangers to ask about the experience. I am here with Mike Burnett. Mike, why are you marching today?
4: Um, I think it's important to support um, causes like equality for women. um, Especially when our new commander in chief shows values that are not necessarily aligned with this cause. So I think it's important for me to be out there and show my support.
3: And how does it feel being one of the men among this gigantic group of mostly women?
4: I think I think it's so equally important for me to show my support as a man for a cause like this um, I think I think it's a great um, cause for me to be out there as well um, marching along with them
3: And what do you hope to gain by participating in the march today
4: um, I don't know if it's so much about what I hope to gain. You know, I want to contribute my support to the cause. Um, I'm not really there for you know my own experience or education. Um, I just want to be there to to yeah, show my support.
3: Yes, Statler through And how do you feel right now? Uh, you know,
5: I'm excited. Uh, I have a lot of energy, and it feels good to be.
3: Um, practicing in our democracy like this. So, we are currently on our way to the march. How do you think it's gonna feel when we get there? What are you expecting? Yeah, um, I think it'll probably be a mix of
5: emotions. Some really positive, some probably a little bit overwhelming. I'm definitely the type of person that tears up at these sorts of things. Um, But I'm ready to get in some chants and
3: hear some good speakers what does it feel like to be a student from Stanford going to this? Do you feel like you're representing something or is that just a fact and you are a person coming to this? I feel more like a
5: person coming to this than a representative of Stanford and I think especially in light of some of the, you know, coastal elite type of rhetoric, I think in some ways it's important to stand by like intellectualism and science and truth um, but also show that that is not some exclusive thing um, to value fact. Mm -hmm.
3: I know that you are currently a student at Stanford in Washington Um, so was it sort of a given among the students of Stanford in Washington that you guys were going to come to this? What what was that decision process like? Yeah,
5: I think pretty much
3: everyone in the Stanford in Washington program
5: knew they were going to be coming to the march. Um, Yesterday we went to the inauguration and some of us felt a little bit uncomfortable. We all ended up going but I think part of the reason why we were able to go to the inauguration was we knew we got to be involved in this more positive action today.
3: What do you feel like you're most excited for or you know if Excited isn't the right word, you know, what do you feel like you're going to really get out of this and take back with you? I think it'll be great to see just the mass of people,
5: and I think especially compared to yesterday, I think just the sheer number of people that are willing to turn out and think that this is a message that needs to be heard um, is going to be really powerful. I'm excited for that.
3: So what's what's your names? Pam. Terry Jane. Why did you guys come to the march today? Um, to show our concern. And what did you think of it? Um,
5: Much
6: more than I thought it would be (laughs) people-wise. Great turnout, huge turnout. Yes. And I love that it's all ages, from young to old. Everybody's here.
3: And what's your sort of biggest takeaway? Like, what are you going to take back with you, if anything? Um, How... People have gotten so into activism
5: because of the election. Yeah. I mean, I love the turnout. I love the fact that people
6: are out here doing this by the hundreds of thousands. You know, it's wonderful. Yeah. I hope Congress is taking note of this yeah. and they're paying attention yeah. because the people are pissed off. Yeah. And do you think that, that activism is going to carry forward into the future? I do. I, I absolutely do. do. Yeah. I especially think with the millennial generation because a fire has been lit for you guys and... I hope, I hope we don't have to continue to have these demonstrations. I hope we break the glass ceilings. I hope we accomplish... All the things that we're here to protest, we're not having. So we don't have to do this anymore. I hope that happens in your lifetime. Are you guys going to run for anything anytime soon? I am not. Certainly not. No. (laughs) One of my friends is running for um, state delegate, and I'm on his election committee. Wow, that's amazing. First time he's gone into politics. Yeah. And where is that? Where are you guys from? Virginia. Oh, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And I'm from the 64th District in Virginia. So, what's your name? My name's Bethany. And what is your sign say? Uh, my sign says, you haven't seen nasty yet. And why did you come to the march? I couldn't not come to the <laughs> march, you know? Yes. I heard it was happening, and there was no way I wasn't going to be at it. And where did you come from? Connecticut. That's great. And what was your biggest takeaway today? Oh, my God. I, I just... I, there's, There's good in the world, you know? It's like, there's so many people here today coming out with support. Great signs, fantastic messages, and like... We don't. They don't outrank us, you know? We're there, and we're not going to be quiet, so it feels good. And what do you think you're going to carry forward in terms of action, you know? What does it look like for you tomorrow and the next day? Well, I just learned about a Planned Parenthood uh, that where they do protesting every weekend to help protect the people trying to go um, into to be a patient, so I'm, I'm going to join the league there and help them every Saturday. So, And do you think this activism really has a chance of propelling forward? I think so. I mean, look at all the people here, you know? A lot of people have made this trek for more than just one day, yes. you know? Yes. Yeah.
3: So, what's your name? Rebecca Gruskin. And where did you come from to get to the march today? I came from Stanford, California. And you're a grad student, is that right?
7: Yes, I am a fifth year grad student in the history department. Okay, and why did you want to come to the march today? I came to the march today in solidarity with the many people who will be hurt under this administration. And how did you feel the march went? You know, what did it feel like to be there? I don't think I've ever been in a crowd with that many people before. It was spectacular to look down the streets and see them covered in all directions. Um, And I love just looking around me, the diversity of people that we saw there together. It was really quite a wonderful experience.
3: And I hope that people go home and and do something positive with this energy in their communities. In addition to the diversity we saw, how did you feel about the diversity on stage and in the um, speakers today? Yeah, I thought the speakers were wonderful. Um, I think it's really important
7: to make sure that this isn't just a march about women, it's also about Black Lives Matter, it's about standing up for the rights of, of immigrants and refugees. Um, It's about standing up for the rights of the LGBTQ community, for trans people, um, for Native Americans, for everyone who will be marginalized by the administration.
3: And I think the speakers did a really good job of demonstrating how important it is that the march is intersectional. One thing that sort of came up, and I think at least one of the speeches, was the fact that white women voted more for Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton. What is kind of your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's depressing. quite frankly
7: (laughs) but um yeah I think that emphasizes more than ever the fact that we have to be linked with all these other struggles I mean we owe a responsibility um, to the rest of the country and to the world to be aware of our privilege and yeah it's just it's hard to have words it's quite depressing but I don't, know, I don't know what else to say but no we are in a way like as a demographic responsible for this and so that makes it more important for us to stand up and not be silent when other people's rights get trampled on
3: going forward I mean what's your main takeaway in terms of bringing this action forward we know what are you, what do you feel like you're going to do tomorrow or the next day oh goodness I think I need to sleep
7: tonight um, <laughs> but no um I mean calling our Congress people, paying attention to the news and not letting this just go into the background and really paying attention to what the administration is doing and making sure that we show up for, for other causes as well is really important. Um, yeah, if, if everyone in that march calls their congressperson tomorrow, it's going to be pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. And do you think that momentum really can carry forward? You know... Yes, because there were just so many of us. I mean, if a quarter of the people that were here today go home and do things, that'll still matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I also think that it's not it's also about carrying out our work, Um, whether we're students or teachers or employed in other sectors to make sure that our work is also contributing to the movements we want to support. Um, That's a political issue and also an economic issue. Uh, I think it's important um, for people who are teachers to continue to go to work and cultivate critical thinking, Um, so there are things we can do in our daily lives as well.
3: What's your name? Felicia. Felicia. And where did you come from to get to the protest today? Uh, San Francisco. And why did you come? I think it's important that
8: we stand up for Equal rights for everyone, but especially
3: women. And to the point you were just making, I think it was mentioned in one of the speeches today that white women, the majority of white women voted for Trump. I mean what, what's your kind of reaction to that? I'm saddened by it. I think it's it's insane because
8: the things he said and did during his campaign they're reprehensible. They should not it shouldn't have
3: happened.
8: And what was your main takeaway from today? I was inspired. I felt hopeful for the first time since November, but I'm also sad that we even had to do this because we should have been out voting to begin with. He won by such a low voter turnout. That's disappointing to me. And do you think that the activism you kind of saw here today will carry forward? I hope so. That's my hope. That's why I'm here why my friends are scattered throughout in all the cities across the U.S. Yes, so. yes. I hope so. I was going to say, I think that this protest means so many different things to so many people that are all important items. It's more than you could ever articulate. But for me personally, it's about we need to fight for gender equality and just sexism and and sexual harassment and those things in the workplace and in the culture we're still having to fight that we shouldn't have to but we are and his campaign was filled with that kind of rhetoric that kind of hateful
3: speech and it's That's why I'm here today. Well, and on the same topic, do you think that the fact that it was about so many different things for so many different people was a good thing, or maybe a dividing factor? No, I felt very—I was worried about that coming to this, but today I felt like
8: people were sort of more united, and for me, my, my protest today or my march today was not to make Donald Trump pay attention, because I don't know that he will. He certainly hasn't up to this point. I would hope he would, but I don't think he will. My efforts to get here and to be here today are for the younger boys and girls to see this, to see what's not acceptable and what we how we should treat each other. And the language that he uses, it's not acceptable. It's not the way we should treat people. It's not the way we should treat women. And so I hope that they see that, and they're going to
3: grow up to be the positive force of change that we want. And how did you feel that the March went in terms of you know, the speakers, the auction? Um, couldn't hear any of it. Not one iota.
8: Okay, gotcha. <laughs> we were too far back. Wow. So that would have been another thing and I'm sure it's because they didn't, I'm sure the administration probably made it difficult for the permitting, so a hindrance, and which didn't stop us. And they probably didn't have the funds, so they couldn't set up speakers all throughout, but it would have been nice if they could have. But we were, everyone around me was understanding of that fact. So, it felt very positive overall.
3: The tone of the day was hopeful, but questions still remain about inclusivity and where we go from here. For the Stanford Political Journal, I'm Kayla Gillery.
2: We have to get busy, folks. We've got our work cut out for us. Number one, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make this part of your new daily routine. I want you to call Congress every single day.
4: Each of you have one representative in the House and two senators. They have a phone number. I'm going to give you that number right now. Are you ready? It's easy to remember. 202. 2-2-5 3-1-2-1 2 2, five, three, one, two one. Can you repeat that with me?